Hello, everyone. Welcome to a brand new episode of The Other 50. As with previous shows, we invite amazing and wonderful and absolutely brilliant ladies to come on the show to talk to us about anything and everything under the sun, except, well, their gender. So today, we have Tanya Andresen, a good friend of ours from the UK, probably not a stranger to any of you who has been to any Finnovate or have read FinTech Futures, because she is the editor-in-chief there amongst everything else. So thank you for joining us today, Tanya. Uh, hello, and thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure. This is fun. Um, so let's get started. You were with IBS Intelligence for over nine years. And so what got you started in writing about banking and fintech? Because I don't think that's something that, you know, when, when we get out of school, we're like, oh, let's write about fintech. <laughs> Well, I graduated uh, from the university with a a major in languages. So I have done a lot of work around writing and translating and all sorts of other things. So journalism was kind of an extension and a natural career path to me. And when I started working at IBS Intelligence, fintech wasn't even a thing. It was all about banking technology. It was all about back office, core banking system, processing, black and green screens. So it wasn't as exciting or as sexy as it is today, but it was interesting. I mean, technology was fascinating even then. And then, you know, a few years on, suddenly smartphones took off to such an extent that everybody started doing banking on their mobiles and whatnot. And suddenly FinTech appeared and suddenly it became really, really exciting. So here I am. When you when you think back, you know, to all the things that you've worked on in terms of researching stories and interviewing people and trying to find sort of the pulse that um, is affecting both banking and fintech in, you know, the last 10 or 15 years, what are some of the more memorable stories that you've worked on um, over the, the time that you've been writing and reporting on what's been happening in this space? Sure. Well, I've always enjoyed looking sort of underneath the hood. So what's really happening when a story is announced or when a press release is issued, because what is said in an official announcement is quite glossy and happy and let's all have a hug. But what happens behind the scenes might be a very, very different story. Lots of blood, sweat and tears and conflict and whatnot. And very often the stories that start well don't necessarily end well. So I've always enjoyed following up on the original projects that started when, for example, a tech vendor and a financial institution would announce a collaboration or a major implementation or anything like that. You know, it's all happy and full of roses. But let's check in a couple of years or a year down the line. Where are they now? And these were my favorite stories when actually the reality and the harsh reality would kick in. So there were a few projects, big ones for big vendors that, you know, started but never completed or went terribly wrong along the way. And quite often we would, I know it sounds terrible, but we would make place bets to see how soon the project would go wrong and how soon it would end in tears. And, <laughs> and more often than not, you know, at least one person would win. And uh, one of my sort of favorite is not the right word, but the one that sticks in my mind was 
when the UK government decided to overhaul the student lending um, project it was running, a program of lending student, students money to complete their university degrees. And it was using very, very old technology. So it ran this major system selection to find a new technology partner to overhaul it front to back office, you know, from digital front end to processing. It selected a vendor, my guess, based on the budget, like whoever was the cheapest, I assume. And uh, when the selection was made and announced, the, all of us were scratching our heads saying, really? And I wonder how soon that's going to go bad. And yes, lo and behold, within like, I don't know, eight months, it all went uh, terribly wrong, forgotten about, and everyone who I think took part in it on either side left and moved on to another probably wonderful governmental project. Do you ever get pushback on any of those type of stories? Like if you're you know, kind of writing and, and digging under the hood a bit. Um, do you ever get like uh, feedback from those that are sort of the, the target of conversation in your pieces about, hey, you know, you could have been a little bit nicer there or like, how does that work if you're, you know, what you're, you're doing your job, you're being, you know, a critical assessor of what's going on. Do you ever get any sort of pushback like that? Oh, absolutely. Before writing any story, be it good or bad, uh, I think any responsible journalist would go to the company or individual they're writing about and try to get their perspective, try to get all the facts, try to get their views and their side of the story, right? Because more often than not, well, always there is more than one side of the story. So uh, being an independent journalist and an independent publication, it's important to get as much of perspective from all sides as possible. But of course, nobody likes to talk about bad stuff, right? Nobody likes to talk about failures. And particularly in large and quite bureaucratic often uh, organizations, you get a lot of pushback and all you get is no comment or we don't provide commentary on ongoing projects or something like that. So then you have to then dig deeper and maybe find specific people in the organization or people who are you know, helping out or companies that are adjacent and try to piece together in an impartial way as much as possible um, what really happened. That's what I've always liked about your stories is that you you do you you dig a little bit more uh, and you you don't let you know that thread be unpulled. Um, and so that's that's one of the great things about a lot of the stuff that's on the site is that you are you're digging uh, and you're you're looking at the angles that others wouldn't uh, because I think like you said there's so much more going under the hood good or bad that the sausage making sometimes actually is the story. Exactly right. I mean, thank you very much. That's very kind of you to say. We're fans, in case you couldn't tell. <laughs> So talking about placing bets um, and what's going to happen, here is one that's interesting. So there's lots going on in the challenger bank space, right? We've been watching with Ernest from the US looking at what's going on in the UK. And now some of them have been or attempting to invade the US, so to speak, such as the N26, the Monzo of the World and the Revolut. Um, who are, I think, trying to conquer the world. And then there are some that are leaving, um, such as recently um, Denizen, 
Mm-hmm. So where do you think that story will go in the next nine to 12 months? I'm not going to ask you who you're placing bet on, you know, who, who, who's, <laughs> who's going to have an unhappy ending. But curious, what's your take on that? Well, I think there is so much potential on both sides of the Atlantic at the moment. And uh, there is still so much market up for grabs that it could be anybody's game. But the question is here, uh, how well you go to market, whether you manage also to be perhaps in the right place at the right time. So Revolut is not the only one with a proposition of a debit, you know, prepaid debit card and uh, low FX fees. But uh, look where they are now. They have this massive investment from SoftBank, which always helps, right? Uh, They manage to capture their mainstream media, and that helps them a lot. Um, And uh, they have a decent product. Whether that's going to really take off everywhere, and at the end of the day, whether they're going to make any money, because at the moment they're loss-making at so many other challenger banks. You know, everybody's talking about Monzo and Starling, but are they making any money? No. Are they losing a lot of money? Yes. But are they investing lots and lots of money into media and advertising and promotion, trying to gain that audience and hold on to, you know, their customers? Absolutely. So I think in the next nine to 12 months, we'll continue to see this frenzy of activity um, in Europe and the US and North America. At the same time, there'll be quite a few, I think, unhappy endings. You know, we already have seen a number of fintechs and paytechs, you know, going bankrupt or being bought up or just forgotten about. Like Denison, you mentioned, you know, by BBVA, you have Loot uh, in the UK. Uh, plenty of other stories, and there will be more stories like that as well. I always wonder too, like, you know, how long can they actually sustain not making money? It's, right. You think it's something so fundamental, right? You have a business, sooner or later, you need to have a model where you can actually turn in revenue, Uh, cash flow positive, but. (laughs) And it's not that easy, you know, just saying you have to find the right niche as well. Like for example, banks like Oak North, for instance, quite a few other SMEs like Tide in the UK, they're doing pretty well. Clear Bank, which is an agency bank proposition. You know, they found the right niche to be able to tap into the, into their market that, you know, and find the solution for the problem as opposed to saying, oh, look, we have a cool debit card or we have this wonderful app. You know, people are like, yeah, okay, great, whatever. Yeah, yeah, it needs to be more than, you know, a pretty looking app. Um, although with Revolut, though, you know, there, there are some, some people that love them and there are some people mm-hmm. that, that are hesitant, right? Because I think that the, the money infusion, obviously, is, is important and, the, and it's nice and it's interesting and you need it. Um, but you look at how well, for example, WeWork is doing with, yeah. with money infusion and SoftBank, here's yeah. another one, where um, in the end, you still need to have a sustainable business model. In the end, you still need to have a culture, right? Mm-hmm. Seems like that's something that we tend to forget. Is, is that a culture that allow people to thrive? Is that a culture where you can actually build a business that, t- that can last for longer? Oh, um, up a hundred percent, and I I've seen quite a lot of um, media and stories that connect or draw parallels between WeWork, right, and Revolut. 
uh, whether rightly or wrongly. Uh, in addition to culture, you also have to take into consideration the growth scale and the growing pains, uh, which always happen when you grow faster that you can sustain your business. Um, you know, customer service is a very important side of things. And with that comes compliance, regulations, uh, heavier dependence on more and more technology and integration of various systems. So all these smaller challenges that kind of position themselves as very different from the big banks because they have less, um, you know, technology spaghetti and uh, less bureaucracy, um, you know, and less of all this sort of red tape. Yes, they have all that, but only thanks to the fact that they're small as they grow. Well, and that's the thing about, you know, culture at these places. You, you have to think about, you know, culture and cult uh, as being sort of two separate uh, words here. But, but sometimes in the case of WeWork and some of these fintechs, you know, you do kind of have that, that cult of the founder. And I think that the, the culture of the organization sort of comes down from, from that one individual or two or small team. And that's, I think, part of the challenge with some of these business models is that, it's not so much that they're not making a profit, but are, are they really doing all that much different? And like you said, it's, it's more than just an app. It's more than just, you know, a single proposition. Um, that's what's kind of curious, I think, about a lot of what's happening in fintech is that the more you specialize, the more you realize that you're not providing a service for more of a financial need with an individual. So it's, it's got to be more than just you know, a way to move money around or to save a little bit here and there, it has to be a little bit more full, full fledged. So, you know, do you think that there's going to continue to be a trend of these institutions uh, or these startups going to be more than just sort of a one trick pony? Uh, possibly. I mean, there are so many of these uh, startups, you know, vying for attention at the moment. Uh, that some of them perhaps, some of them maybe are going for the low-hanging fruit. You know, it's something that's easy. Um, a lot of them don't have a long-term plan or a sustainable model. And all they want is just to quickly sell to, you know, somebody like SoftBank, I guess, or to a big bank. And then, you know, uh, laugh all the way to the bank, I guess, you know, <laughs> excuse the pun. Um, but absolutely, I agree that there has to be uh, a, a more kind of not inclusive, but a, a bigger culture around what it is that you're offering. And that's why I find, for example, organizations like um, Tide or Coconut in the UK, for instance, looking at this whole SME sector uh, holistically. So it's not just an app that helps you to, I don't know, pay your employees. Um, they're also trying to provide you with a whole end-to-end -end proposition for an SME business. So connecting to their um, tax, uh, you know, services, connecting to other people in the business community by setting up your uh, community of entrepreneurs, by connecting to technology that helps you, for example, automate receipts. So it's a bigger story, not just, oh, let's save some money or, oh, let's pay, let's organize the payroll. Absolutely. We would like to give a mention to our creative partner, Tremendousness. Tremendousness is a creative agency 
that uses visual thinking, information design, and storytelling to help organizations explore innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us. Yeah, I, I like those. Um, it seems to be at least for the last, I'd say, six months or so, we're starting to see a little bit more variations like those serving the gig economy workers, which you know it is a big trend, right? If you look at how we're working and how we are earning money,、um, and the current sets of solutions and products, if you will, from Traditional banks just aren't cutting it, and and we run into you know similar challenges too when we set up our companies. Like,、uh, wait a minute, that th- this does not work. You're trying to jam something in. I mean, you know, sure, at the end of the day, you still get paid, but there are a whole lot more than just like you say, moving money, right?、Yeah. That that needs to be accounted for.、Um, it, it it's interesting though if you if you look at especially the last few weeks, there's no lack of reports about. The abundance, or I would say, overabundance of funding that is going into fintech sector seems、oh, like we're so very excited, right? So much money going on. Oh, let's raise another twenty mil. It's like, wait, wait, you know, it's, it, what are we doing with the money?、Um, and and there's always, you know, the headline of XX is still racing because there's so much abundance of capital going around.、Um, it's, it's crazy. You know what? I get approached by various funds and VCs quite often. Who are asking me whether I could give them the tips on whom to invest first?、Uh, in first, because they are competing fiercely with other VCs and funds of who gets first to whatever startup to invest in. Then it's crazy. <laughs> it's like shut up and take my money. You know, <laughs> it's just insane. Brad, how do you think that's going to end? I, I was just going to say, make sure that you're getting something for that in exchange, Tanya, because、uh, if you're going to be the the tip of the sword in terms of finding those great startup founders, you know, from day one, then、uh, you should be getting some some、uh, earnings off of that.、Um, yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. It, whenever I see like a a round for a startup that I've almost not even heard about, and they're getting twenty five, thirty five, fifty million dollars, and they're solving, you know, one of You know about 1,100 different needs that maybe a financial、um, relationship should have. I, I really, I, I question where things are going because we're not seeing enough exits. We're not seeing enough companies go to IPO. We're not seeing enough companies being acquired. We're not seeing enough companies actually turning a profit. And you know, 10, 12 years in, everybody still chases that you know sort of next way that banks are going to make money and. Very few of these companies are really, really turning any sort of profit, nor do they have any、um, profit on the horizon. And so, the challenge I think in covering this space is to ask the questions that you're looking at, which is, where are you going with this? What are you going to be when you grow up? And how are you going to build a sustainable business that isn't just being driven to be acquired?、Um, and that's, you know, those are the questions that you should be asking every single founder that you talk to. It's like. Okay, so so why are you doing it? What's your focus going to be? Where are you going to go with this? Because if you're just going to try to be a bank, there's still an awful lot of high street banks and Wall Street banks that are like incrementally still doing a very good job at serving you know tens, if not hundreds, of millions of people.、Um, so it's going to be hard, you know, to kind of break through. So continue to ask those questions. 
I agree. I agree. Absolutely. 100%. But I wonder how many, I mean, I'm sure there are very, very clever people who work at these investment companies and VCs, but a lot of them might not understand or know the banking sector. So a lot of them might get swayed by beautiful PowerPoint presentations and the promises, you know, of uh, a wonderful future uh, in finance sort of technologies. Plus, I'm sure that VCs suffer from the same fear of missing out um, yeah. as, you know, any other sector. So if one of them invests into some into someone, others suddenly are like, oh my God, should we do that as well? Okay, me too, me too, you know. Well, that's what happened with Juicero, wasn't it? And in the end, it mm-hmm. became a disaster. <laughs> so let's, let, let's talk about, you know, um, so you write a lot, you edit a lot, you speak a lot in, in conferences, and um, you craft storylines, you basically build out, you know, what we read on a day-to-day basis. So we're curious, um, as we always are, who influences um, your thinking and, and, what, and what are you reading right now? Uh, I am a big fan of books, well, as probably anybody who writes a lot probably is, because without reading, how would you ever perfect your craft of writing? And um, one of the latest books that I've read that I really enjoyed was Albert Camus' The Outsider. I believe in American English, it's translated as The Stranger. Uh, it's a book, but it has this most beautiful, simple language and a simple, straightforward storyline. But it's written in such a way that there is not a single word to take out and not a single word to add. It's perfection. Um, similar to, say, Ernest Hemingway's stories, when you think it's so simply constructed, but it's so beautiful. So to me, the simplicity in language that brings the story to life, to perfection, without any superfluous words, without any additional explanations. This is the ultimate goal with only very few great writers can achieve. Because at the end of the day, be it music or art or writing, we all have the same set of tools. It's just somehow some of us manage to create beautiful music with the same notes and some of us you know can't even string the two together and here I'm talking about myself yeah and uh, and there's Mr. Lyman here too who is the resident poet um or or what did Ron call you the other day the fintech philosopher yeah, I was going to say there's not enough uh, poetry in banking. Um, I think the, the the type of reading that um, we we too often uh, see is the press release with a little bit of words around it. And I think that people not only have to put the context of what they're building um, and what they're working on in some form that is not just a little bit entertaining, but something that actually means something more. And I think that there's an awful lot um, on your site, Tanya, that goes along those lines. Uh, There are plenty of authors, yourself included, that write with a sense of urgency and a sense of direction around the larger picture and where things are headed and why it's important. 
Um, because I think that if we don't have influences sort of outside of this business, then all we are here to is sort of suck the marrow out of our consumers uh, globally, uh, rather than having a conscience around why the industry exists in the first place. So um, good to hear that you are reading more than just uh, banking books. Um, oh, <laughs> yes, I, uh, like, I'm not a big fan of banking books, to be honest. <laughs> well, so, so along those lines, though, um, What's interesting, I think, about this space is, you know, when I first came into banking, it, I would read American Banker, and there wasn't an awful lot more in terms of um, either websites or books or, you know, there was nothing 15 years ago. You had to kind of find out on your own through talking to people about what's happening in the industry. There wasn't as much news about it. You could read the Wall Street Journal, but it was about the economy and how banks sort of related to that. It wasn't the day-to-day -day sausage making. But now everybody has the ability to to write and to speak and to have their own two cents. And I think we're still in some ways in the early stages of the way that it's being covered now from multiple angles. How do you feel about the actual business that you're in of production of words and content and writing and media in general? Do you, what do you, what do you see as the, the next iteration of how people learn about things like banking i think i think there is so much noise in the industry today like you said anybody can set up a website anybody can start a blog um, anyone can add their own opinions on you know linkedin or medium or what have you that you really as a media company i feel it's important to differentiate yourself to really offer something that your readers would find valuable interesting, engaging, useful, but also reliable. So I don't like lazy journalism. I don't like cut and paste, you know, or copy and paste of the press releases. Uh, I think that people do appreciate and need uh, perhaps to be able to genuinely understand what's going on in the industry. And that's why it's always important to be a responsible journalist, to dig behind the story, to add some value to the story and uh, to really portray what's genuinely going on, you know, impartially. Or if you're adding some passionately partial view, it has to be also clearly, rationally and reasonably delivered. You know, provoking debate is good as well, right? If we all agreed on everything, it would be awfully boring. Um, so... I think that we are in the media bubble as well at the, at the moment as we are in the fintech bubble and uh, time will tell who is more successful or not because at the end of the day, even in the media space, people are out there to, take, to make money, right? So time will tell, but I hope that, for example, what I am doing at the moment would stand the test of time. And I think it will, because um, one of the things I love about FinTech Futures is your ability to bring in different voices um, in, in each one of the, of the, the daily reading um, or even in the hard copy publications. I actually don't think there are too many that do produce, you know, paper magazine, but I, I love those. That's like the first thing I always go to and get when I ever go to a FinNovate show. It's like, oh, wait, this is the latest. There, there's value in, in paper and flipping through paper and reading stories. 
I agree. I, I, I love uh, paper magazines, I, but I think in the past, you know, pre-internet sort of or pre this digital media era, there were quite a few B2B trade publications and quite a lot of them could not really adapt and I'm sure there is a parallel <laughs> with the banking and other industries to the digital era. So they kept producing the magazines in the same way, in the same style, with the same content as they did in the 1980s or the 1990s. And times have changed the way people consume. Even the print media has changed as well. So I've seen quite a lot of banking and financial services, technology publications falling by the wayside. Um, so I thought, oh, there is an opportunity for us here to continue with our banking technology magazine, which has been around since the 80s. But we had to overhaul it as well. We had to change quite a lot, you know, to bring it up to date. So something that still delivers value and still has fantastic content, but at the same time, this content is easy to consume and fun um, and easy to digest. In, in, in terms of the way that the, the business model for something like Fintech Futures um, or other types of sites, I mean, is it still primarily ad-driven? Is there um, sort of ways that, that sponsors are getting involved in, in creating content? I mean, like, what are the ways do you, do you in, ensure that a publication like yours um, continues to sort of evolve its own business? Because you're covering, you know, startups and all these companies that are kind of striving to shift um, their own business model to sort of react to the changes in the market. Do you see sort of the, the economics of a site like yours changing dramatically? Uh, yes, definitely. I think quite a lot of trade publications in the past were very heavily subscription-based. So the whole business model was based around the paywall, you know, and subscription of the, say, physical copy or whatever that might be. I mean, that has changed dramatically now because there is so much information you can get for free. So why, unless you deliver something that is so unique and so well-crafted, why would anybody pay for it? You know, if it's the same press release, well, I can read it for free on, you know, on the website, on somebody else's website. So a lot of uh, publications have transitioned or tried to uh, into the model that is, as a business model, supported by the sponsorship and advertising as opposed to subscription. Um, so our website is based on uh, advertising as well. You know, it's, you know, there's no secret around that. Um, but what we, so what we try to do is to combine obviously very strong editorial that would uh, impartial and responsible that would ensure that people come and read our publication and find value in it and respect it because they know that if they read something in FinTech Futures, it is true, it is fact-based, it is well-researched, you know, and can be depended on. But at the same time, uh, to offer the advertisers an opportunity to promote themselves, their services, thought leadership or products to our readership base, you know, and there is a clear, that sort of clear distinction between the two. Uh, so hopefully the readers, when they come to the site, they can see what's advert and what's not. Uh, but I guess lots of people realize that if you read something for free, I guess there will be an advertising somewhere popping up <laughs> out there for you. And I don't think people mind. Well, I hope they don't mind. So um, 
if you were to sum up this year, right, 2019, there's been quite a few going on. Um, what would be the headline that we use to sum this year up? And um, since we're getting close to the end of the year, um, do you have some big trends prediction that you can offer us for 2020? Uh, well, I think that 20, 2019 was all about uh, customer experience and customer personalization. So personalization of services, and that includes all sorts of tools that help with that, such as big data and AI and machine learning, uh, you know, and even their PFM tools, you know, the, the personal finance management. So my prediction is that this will continue and only accelerate in um, 2020. So that kind of everything revolves around the customer, but at the same time, it's a human-centered design. So it's not just technology, technology, technology. It's also personal with a human touch. So how you marry these two to deliver the best value and the best proposition. I love that. And I'm sure a lot of people will resonate. So we will look forward to seeing the new um, issue and the new editions of banking technology and fintech futures. And for those of you who are not familiar with it, I would strongly encourage you to go look it up. There's always good content there for you to read. And thank you so much, Tony, for joining us today. Thank you very much. 